Don't pick your team on game day. Have that paperwork in place. Have those agreements with your outside counsel, with your IR team, with a PR vendor. Most of them will be introduced to you from your panelists. But regardless of whether you were doing this related to insurance or not, definitely have that response plan. Have those teams picked. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Brian Hurd, Chief of Office at Aon Cyber Solutions, formerly known as Straws Friedberg. I had the pleasure of working with the Straws Friedberg team a while back when we co-consulted on the sort of incident that you hope you never have to face. I always thought it would be fun to have one of their team come on down to the ranch to talk about the gritty realities of ransomware from the trenches. So Brian Hurd is here, and we're having an incredible conversation about the do's, the don'ts, and the gotchas. Brian, thanks so much for coming on down to the ranch. Oh, thanks, Alan. Glad to be here. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. All right, so why don't you briefly tell us a little bit about your background in cyber and about your current role? Sure. I've uh, been in cyber since about 1993 when I graduated from the uh, U.S. Naval Academy and went to a uh, job at the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, what some of you kids may know as NCIS, the TV show. And it was great to work there uh, in the early days of cyber in the mid-90s. One caveat I have to say is uh, we weren't that cute. Uh, We weren't that smart because we couldn't solve crime in 32 minutes when you take all the commercials out. So uh, reality and TV are a little bit mixed. And I've had friends who uh, have told me that, you know, they modeled some of the episodes and or characters after some of our shared shenanigans. So that was uh, fun to know. Since then, I've had the honor to work with some of the world's greatest teams in the government uh, realm fighting counter espionage or fighting espionage and terrorism around the globe as well as being the lead for the identity layer of the U.S. watchlisting system, what many of you know is the no-fly list, and then also taking a position as Microsoft's first chief of cybercrime intelligence at the Digital Crimes Unit. And now I get to work with groups around the world as part of Aon's team, helping with major breaches and trying to avoid them. For our listeners, uh, Brian and I, between us, I think we've figured out we've bagged about a... <laughs> I don't know about a hundred ransomware incidents in the last few years that we've uh, that we've worked. Um, so I, I think you're going to hear some true real world experiences from both of us here. But I'm going to start with a question for Brian that I've kind of got my answer in my back pocket, but I'd love to hear yours, Brian. And that is: Is ransomware still the number one threat organizations are facing? And I say this because the pure play ransomware. You know, we come in, we encrypt your crap, we demand money, we leave. You know, that kind of thing. I think that's fading to be replaced by the ransomware in conjunction with the threat of publishing the breach data, right? And, and it seems to me that a lot of companies are far more concerned about their breach data getting published than they are about unransoming their in-house data. Uh, what's your take on that one? Uh, that is exactly the trend we're seeing as well, is that the companies who have better backups of the ability to recover their business from the encryption component of the extortion, the adversaries starting with a few and now going across many, are including exfiltration and a secondary extortion around publication or doxing of that company. There are different strategic decision-making components that I think you and I are going to get into during the discussion today about how to handle each of those types of extortion 
and what you may have to do to withstand that type of two-phased attack. So we're, we're seeing this the same way then. So let's talk a little bit about the obvious controls. I think everyone knows with ransomware, you want to get your MFA in place. You want to get your vulnerability management in place. You want to get some security awareness training going. You know, the best recovery techniques, I think, is regularly tested. And I want to emphasize offline backups. What else can organizations do to help protect themselves from ransomware that's not on the, the obvious heavy hitter list there? And I think this is one of the areas where it's a lot of fun, as geeky as that statement sounds, to work for the insurance industry nowadays. The reason I took this job was to see inside the longitudinal math of the insurance industry around cyber. I see that as a what I've called before a tectonic shift. There are nine root cause areas that the insurance industry and claims adjusters and underwriters have diagnosed from all those hundreds of cases we've worked. They are MFA, as you've said, endpoint yep. protection and response, EDR, phishing yep. exercise and cyber awareness training, patch management, secure RDP VPN, having an incident response plan in place, and testing it with executive and technical level tabletops, active directory and service accounts, least privilege, et cetera, disaster recovery and backups that you already mentioned, and email filtering. Those are the nine smoke detectors, sprinkler systems, radon detection, and fire doors of their day to that are the cause of either the initial ransomware attack or mm -hmm. its spread and a larger fire, so to speak, for both the company and the insurance company. Great. That's a fantastic list. And that's I, I think that's inclusive. As you were rattling that off, I was thinking, what are we missing? And I can't off the top of my head think of anything. We've got our greatest hits now, and, and it comes from the insurance guys, which is, you know, go figure. They're the ones picking up the tab when things go south. They've got a, a bit of a vested interest in <laughs> making sure stuff goes the right way. So let's shift gears. You've, you've kind of alluded to some of this. Like, what do organizations do wrong when it comes to dealing with ransomware attacks? And I'm thinking of a few examples that I've seen, like uh, failing to properly identify the ingress point um, so that the bad guys are still on the network when recovery starts, Failing to keep the backups offline until the environment is resecured, resulting in ransomed backups. I have seen that one. Failing to have good backups in the first place. Can't tell you how many times I've seen that one. Uh, mixing up the various phases of the IR plan in general and rushing to recovery before triage is complete. That seems to be a very popular choice. And I will argue as well, specifically in manufacturing, I see that problem more than I do anywhere else. People are so worried about the millions of dollars being lost with every minute of downtime that they're willing to start coming back up before they've really triaged. And I've seen that backfire. And then failing to have a clear plan for incident response, uh, including, like you said, notifying roles or communication paths. When the uh, fecal matter hits the impeller unit, you need to be there and you need to know what's happening. You need to know what to say to who and who you're saying it to and all of that stuff. And finding out live that you don't have a good communication plan, that you don't have a good incident plan, like that to me is one of the biggest snafus you'll see in the whole process is the panic chickens with their heads cut off circle of freaking out CEOs knocking on doors, wanting to know what's going on. Nobody's got a good answer for, you know, the whole bit, right? Yes. And I think that's a great foundational list and, and executives should take a great deal away from that. I think one of the, the first fallacies around ransomware is we're too small to be targeted. Nobody will care about us. I want to 
disavow and uh, dissuade people from thinking that way because there are small criminals that yep. target small companies specifically because they're small. There, It is a multi-tiered marketing mm-hmm. ecosystem of evil around ransomware just itself. Nobody's too small to be targeted. They target companies, churches, hospitals, all those kind of things. And they never stop no matter what some of the articles will tell you. The other component is don't pick your team on game day. Like don't show up at the Super Bowl and introduce your quarterback to the rest of your team. Have that paperwork in place. Have those agreements with your outside counsel, with your IR team, with a PR vendor. Most of them will be introduced to you from your panelists. But regardless of whether you were doing this related to insurance or not, definitely have that response plan, have those teams pick. As foundational as the following statement may sound, and I'll back it up, print out your ransomware response plan, or at least have a pocket card laminated (laughs) with the phone numbers of me, your cyber smoke jumper, your outside counsel, your CEO, and your CFO, the people that need to sign a contract to pay for firemen. So the... Even if you, t- for, for younger kids, hey, take a picture, have it on your cell phone. That's probably not ransom, but your entire email system and shared drive will. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's, let's store our, all of our vital documents on our incident response plan, our preparedness, the steps we've already taken, our controls. Let's put all that on the, uh, on the massive public file server in the middle of the company and uh, hope for the best. I've had a client that actually had to Google our 1-800 number because they could not find my my cell phone number that I had given them for incident response. Oh wow. And uh okay. it was a it was a horrible lesson for all of us. Uh the other thing I think is those first 12 hours. And again, in any emergency management mm. situation, physical or cyber, the initial response, the response to the patient, the ability to assess, contain, uh, like you're talking about the phases of that IR, the criticality yeah. of those first 6, 12, 24, 48 are often yeah. lost negotiating contracts. Yes. Yes. And that's a real good point. And try and negotiate them Friday night at 9 PM or Sunday morning of a three day weekend at 8 AM. And you'll be welcome to my world. That's when it's going to occur. Pick the worst time. And that's when you're going to need somebody not only to negotiate the contract, but to obligate 50 or a hundred thousand dollars for a response team and be authorized to sign. And and this is where I'm a firm believer in have your own internal team that can truly handle the situation 100%. Or if you don't and can't, have your external team lined up, have those contracts already in place. You know, it's funny to me that forensics, almost everybody has a contract in place and farms that out. You get a new situation, you ship a hard drive, they do their thing, they ship it back, you've paid in advance. Like, why is it we can all do that for forensics, but for IR, people just deer in headlights when you suggest that? I think it is a lot of... I think it's a self-inflicted wound of our own profession. And as being one of the first, you know, aged founding parents of the community, uh, along with uh, several others, we're used to doing things on our own. We're used to self-serving to fix what a lot of times are lower level, minor incidents or things like that. Technically, the team is highly qualified potentially to respond to a ransomware. Unfortunately, the legality needed, attorney-client privilege, and many of mm-hmm. the nuances that you and I Helen, have dealt with at the executive level are, yeah. I learned something new, honestly, on every ransomware. Now, oh, absolutely. Every single time. Absolutely. And I'm going to throw one out where, you know, just a total sidebar note. In most situations in life, in, in my career, in the workplace, 
I'm a big believer in I'd rather have no blank than a bad blank. But I'm telling you right now, in the heat of battle, in the middle of a ransomware recovery, honestly, I think a bad incident commander is better than no incident commander. Because at least you've got a central point of focus, at least the communication's flowing into one place, and you can have somebody tapping them on the shoulder saying, bad move, do this, do that, do this instead. But at least the communication flow in and out is happening through that one entity. Like, I'm okay with a bad incident commander as long as that person's willing to listen. <laughs> it's far better than no incident commander assigned and everybody running around like chickens, right? Uh, agreed. And I think one of the things about the roles when you really get into an enterprise level incident, whether your enterprise is five people or 5,000 or 50,000 people, it, it really kind of doesn't matter to a degree. The executive leader of the response needs to have the heart of the business in their mind, the soul of the yep. business in their head, and the understanding of the client relationships that are in jeopardy, the legal mm -hmm. and litigation downstream for years, decades yep. in some cases after that, yep. as well as an understanding of the decisions, when to turn the internet off, when to turn it back on, what gets restored yep. first, where does which organ does blood go to first? Uh, if you're right. if you have ENTs on the call here, and uh, those kind of things are decisions above and beyond technical. The technical personnel are critical to implement or inform, but at the end yep. of the day, it really is remarkably a non-technical set of problems that face a, a ransomware board. And that 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 prompts me like for our listeners. Outline the phases as you see them, and I'll and I'll compare to my phases, and we'll 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 go back and forth a little bit there. Like ransomware is hit, incident commander steps up. What are the what are the first things you do? What are the first steps you take on through you know actually finally recovering? Well, one of the interesting parts of it is, and of course uh, we can go through the NIST phases of incident response. Yeah, you, as you yeah, yeah. as you've talked about, you've got assessment, containment, so uh, recovery, so forth. But what I'll say is, you know, the first uh, indicators of a problem often are starting to be worked as tickets like, oh, the email server is not responsive. Oh, I can't log in to fix it. Hey, by the right. way, I'm getting, you know, you're, you're running around. You're like, oh, there seems to be water here and here. And then you look in the basement and there's 12 feet of water and you're like, oh, that's where that's coming from or the uh, leaking sink upstairs. So right, right. I, I think first of it is, is how does a bill become a law? How does a minor technical issue evolve itself up to an incident? an enterprise incident, and then starting to wake up the, the front office. Having those processes in place to quickly diagnose, that is what the core IT team needs to do. Know when to light a flare, what is a problem. Exactly. And when the flare is lit, like where to aim it, right? You don't just shoot it up. You've got to have a specific plan of, I need to alert that person, this person, and possibly this person, and have that figured out too, right? Agreed. Having that, having that critical call tree, having those people understand their roles before the phone rings, having a backup if that person is in the air, on vacation, in the hospital, those kind of things need to be talked out. And that's where a tabletop exercise is not you walking through a script. I've seen horrible ones. We'll talk about that later. Right, right. It just, it, that's not what it's for. It's not to get the script through and get the end. It's to have those discussions about mm -hmm. who does what, who can decide what, um, who is, you know, the racy model, who's responsible, who's, you know. Right. I call that the now what game. Yeah, exactly. You know, oh, we're going to call Fred. Fred's not available. Now what? Now what? <laughs> <laughs> we're going to call Susan. Susan's not available. Now what? <laughs> when I was in the Navy, it's called a battlefield promotion. The squad leader's not you here. Go. You better make sure this works. So, Congrats. Yeah. 
the uh, those kind of things happen. That's that first, you know, when does it get elevated? What are the triggers to go from, you know, a minor issue to a ticket, to an incident, to an enterprise incident, to an incident response that needs the general counsel reaching out to the outside counsel, your lawyer's lawyer, and then right. uh, and engaging, you know, outside help because this has become more of a, a problem than should or could be handled by the inside team. Then that happens. And a lot of times people don't understand it's actually the outside counsel that in theory runs the breach. They are the breach coach per se. The incident response vendor is a technical advisor. There you go. Now we engage often directly with the technical teams and need that inside knowledge, but it's all under this appropriate umbrella of privilege and direction of your lawyer's lawyer. Then the other thing is, you know, how does the fireman hook into the uh, plumbing system of your company? Do you have a plan for where incident responders would get the right accounts to get the right logs to start assessing what happened or what's actually not even what happened, what's happening. Right, right. It's still live at the moment you're starting this process. And that's something so vital to remember. Absolutely. And that is one of the, one of the major issues around this is that that team comes in, they're not going to, they're going to start collecting logs. They're going to start looking for indicators. They're not going to have the innate knowledge of what's in what room of your house. That mm-hmm. camaraderie between those two teams is critical for success in those first days. We, we've gotten to the events triggering to incidents, triggering to enterprise incidents, triggering to call trees, triggering to we got all the right players on the field. So now we've assembled a football team, hopefully from a playbook and everybody already knows their role and the wide receiver isn't running backwards and all all that good stuff. So we've got the team assembled. The team is on the field. Our next step is to, uh, to your point, uh, it's a live incident still. There's a bad guy or, or more than one bad guy still somewhere. What's our next step? So, and that's the, you go prep at standard things, preparation, identification, containment, eradication, recovery, and then lessons learned. So you're in the identification and containment phases, but in a ransomware attack, the very final stage is the distribution of ransomware. Likely the adversary has been in the system sometimes for months, but I'll tell you what Mm -hmm. scares me sometimes for a day or less. I've seen from zero to ransomed in 24 hours. I don't right. say that to scare anybody. I say that because the 200-day dwell time, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, that happens, yeah. but sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes it doesn't drastically. Right. right. It, it can be that mm-hmm. rapid a thing, although in my experience, the guys that lurked the longest were the ones with the most effective targeting. The longer they lurk, the more they know exactly which files to hit, which servers to hit, which entities to hit, which backdoors to open, to allow themselves back in, et cetera, et cetera. Like the guys that have been there 200 days, generally speaking, are dug in. They've got their foxholes, right? And that is exactly the problem. You, so an analogy and a very apt one is you come home and somebody's broken into your house and they rummage through your stuff and you believe stolen stuff. So, okay, you go through and you, you fix your front door lock. They might still be living in the attic and coming down at night and watching you sleep and stealing food from your fridge. That's the problem with containment. The ransomware event, the most egregious thing they did, may not yeah. be the only thing they did. And that's where the regimentation of figuring out the scope and scale of the ransom attack, figuring out what capabilities you still do have. Are you going to turn the internet off? What can you turn off and still survive as a business? What, right. what is the daily downtime business interruption costs uh, of that? Yep. 
those kind of things are critical to understand at the executive level, because then they're going to make cost versus gain decisions about how much they want to spend to rebuild those servers, hopefully in Roman golden image, who's going to do yep. it, yet another contract, probably yet another vendor. We, we have people that help on our team that do that. Those are all decisions that are horribly quick and horribly expensive at the time of crisis. Yep. Been there. Exactly. And as you get through a believed containment, you then chew back to the initial entry point and figuring out what back doors and things like that, because then yep. those have to be shored up. And then you can start talking about having true containment and then the eradication of this mold that has been sprayed all over your house. Um, right, right. And for those that think that buying the key gets you out of it, the key is just a toothbrush. You now must go scrub everything until you're willing to eat off of it. And that analogy is apt. That's a great analogy. Now let's pause here for just a second and hear a brief word from our sponsor. The complexity of cloud infrastructure means every organization's security challenges are unique. Whether your challenge is threat hunting, policy management, cloud workload protection, or all of the above, Uptix helps you quickly identify and eliminate observability gaps in your security program. That's Uptix. Analytics for the modern attack surface, observability for the modern defender. Check out Uptix by visiting Uptix.com. That's U-P-T-Y-C-S dot com. Thank you, Uptix, for sponsoring this episode. You know, that speaks to so many failings I've seen. It's, it's a great description of the stages and processes. And like you said, derived from NIST, but with some real world practicality thrown in there. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen containment fail because restoration began before containment was completed, before people really took the time to figure out, is this the only way they got in? Uh, are there other backdoors? Did they set up backdoor accounts? Golden ticket, let's reset once, not twice. I mean, there's a million and one little little small things that, that can cause containment to, to not be effective and, and, and to cause recovery to just be a whole second round of infection all over again, right? Yeah, we uh, we actually, in some cases, uh, set up a monitoring, we call it Firewatch, so that the fire doesn't re-spark and spread, whether right. it be the ransomware or some type of deployed malware, yep. or whether it be the re-entry of an active cyber shooter, so to speak, right, right. Uh, of a person coming back in. Because again, and there's a whole discussion about communication to the adversary or negotiation we'll get into. But if they get frustrated with delays, they may come in and try and cause more pain to extort you more. Yep, that's it. That is exactly it. And and there's nothing more fun for the bad guys than catching you almost recovering and slamming you again. Seen it too many times. So, all right, let's step back from the technicals a little bit and go back to that business perspective. As you pointed out, the technicals should only be uh, an informing factor, right? Even the CISO in my mind is there to represent certain capabilities to speak to controls that may, you know, may be broken or compromised, controls that could be deployed, et cetera. It's still a business conversation very much. And, you know, the, the million dollar question is, is it really a discussion of pay or not pay, right? What are some of the components to the ransomware extortion discussions you are seeing in more recent cases? And it, it is interesting to see in the press, like, well, people shouldn't pay. You're right. You shouldn't pay extortionists in the real world or in the cyber world. The reason it's called extortion is because it's really not an option. The option is pay or not or go out of business right. um, if you can't get out of the encryption and you have no backups. So the not pay means shutter and all of your employees don't retire. They don't get paid. They got to go find new jobs. 
and you know your fiduciary responsibilities have been abdicated. Yeah. And so the other component in that regard, making the the payee yet a criminal with with OFAC and other things. And believe me, I've done counterterrorism for decades. Don't pay terrorist money. However, to get my own child back, yeah, we're going to have exceptions to that rule. And that's the thing that many companies face is they not only face the concern about, look, I can't get out of this any other way. Then they face a concern of, you know, appropriately OFAC violations or other things. Mm -hmm. However, what I'll say is, uh, just like in those other cases, I find it hard to believe the United States government's going to victimize again a victim uh, who's been extorted. It's right. not optional. Right. Uh, and then the secondary component is on the ransomware your way to the discussion about pay or not pay of the encryption is, do I have to pay to get my data back? A technical question to the CISO about their disaster recovery plan yep. and whether immutable storage, if you want to have an online backup, you can have it immutable and encrypted in place. There's new options in the cloud. You can have that near line, offline, you know, monthly, weekly, daily. How many yeah, yeah, days yeah. are you willing to go back? RTO, RPO. If, if, you, yep. if you've got a real plan, RTO and RPO are a conversation you've already had with the business, right? I mean, as the CISO, it should just be a matter of, yeah, 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 we already agreed to this. We're going to restore to that point and off we go running, right? In exactly. <laughs> and the other, the other component of the encryption discussion or the extortion for encryption and mm -hmm. decryption of your stuff is, well, it's not our money. It's the insurance company's money. Yeah, kind of. Um, to a degree, the market is hardened. There are sublimits for how much ransom they're going to pay. And after you pay that ransom, the re your renewal is going to be a very interesting discussion. So even if, you know, take out the argument that we're just paying the adversaries money and it funds them come back. Yeah, they're going to get that money anyway. This is a multi-trillion dollar industry of extortion. You know, my desire not to pay to save my business is not really going to impact this. I would rather see, as we're seeing, a whole of government effort to find, convict in absentia, and then put in jail when they visit extradition countries, these cyber criminals and kingpins. Right. So that, that part of the discussion is, can you recover? And it's a very technical answer to your CEO and COO yep. that the CISO, the CIO, and the CTO go, yep, we can. It'll cost X. Well, let's just pay for the key. Guess what? That will cost X plus the ransom. Right. And how many times have you seen the key, quote unquote, work only to need tech support from the bad guys because something's wrong with it? And then what else have I seen? I've seen the key work, but it turns out all it's going to do is decrypt individual files, but not restore file linkages. And, you know, like I've seen a huge spectrum of we went ahead and paid for the key and, re, you know, your mileage may vary on results, right? So the the couple of things about that is, and, and I'll mention it and we can go as much in depth as you wish. When you do these things, you don't try and do it yourself. You hire, there are great companies that do the ransomware negotiation and have a very set process mm -hmm. for negotiating, testing that the key decrypts presented files and those types of things. So like, oh, we pay for the key and it doesn't work. There's, that is rare in my field, but apparently common if you try and do it yourself. Yep, I've seen uh, it. Yep. And so that part, the other component is, the adversary will give you a decryption piece of software. Woe be it to the person that uses that piece of software. Now, that is, you are, you're taking malware from the people that are extorting you and, <laughs> and gave you malware. from bad guys? Yeah, what could exactly. possibly go wrong? Again, the companies that work on this, mine and the people we use in these transactions, and I hate doing these transactions. I hate, hate, hate it. The, 
they extract the decryption keys from the software yeah. and either craft a new or put into a previous uh, friendly piece yeah. of decryption software. And as you and I have seen in cases that, that we've both worked and, uh, and discussions we've had, the decryption success rate, they spend a lot of money on the encryption process because that's what makes them money. They don't yeah. give a damn about the decryption process. Yes, you get a year of help desk support. Good luck calling it. They'll send you more malware. And the malware we've seen with the decryptors from the bad guys has droppers in it to further infect your system. Oh, of course. Yeah, of course. So why stop at one extortion when you can you know, knock out right. two or three? Let's make this a relationship. <laughs> exactly. You're, you're a repeat customer. And it's not because you paid. It's because they can get back in. So let's right. differentiate that too. Your proclivity to pay is because they were able to extort you. That makes you an easy target for revisiting. It's, yeah. you know, that's a, that's a great discussion of not paying and using that money, time, and energy for something else. Yep, yep. The other component of that is when you decrypt, and you're right, individual small files will decrypt. It takes forever. You are talking the decryption alone, weeks, weeks, mm -hmm. weeks, weeks, even for mm -hmm. smaller groups. For and, and then the question is, how many are you doing in parallel and how many systems? And are you decrypting back onto the very infected system, as you've talked about, the replacement yep. the remediation? Was it contained before you restored? Right. And yep. say you're lucky, you're blessed that 90% of, of the files by count come back. Guess what the 10% that won't is? Large files of multi-terabytes, most of your backups, your email, and other things you care about. Database and files. anything in flight when it was encrypted, which encryption and data in motion do not go well together. Yeah. So the corruption of, as you've said, the break of linkages, the corruption of data in flight, those types of things, and larger files if processes aren't stopped during the decryption, some adversaries try and help you and do that. Others don't care. Right. And it'll be weeks after weeks or months after the incident when you're finding out what finally came out of this horrific process and what you just have to throw away because it's still covered in mold. So we talked about the roles of outside counsel, IR firms, you know, smoke jumpers, inside teams that you can build and put together. We've, we've talked about a lot of the roles. Now, I want to shift a little bit here and focus on the CEO and the other execs. We talked about having the call trees. We talked about when to alert who. And at some point, you're alerting the CEO. If it's a serious enough event, you know, CEO gets brought in. When you talk about the communication flows, you already mentioned and alluded to PR firms and, and outside counsel, et cetera. But at the end of the day, the CEO and the other execs have a relationship with your business's customers. And how do you start being transparent as the CEO or the other execs dealing with the customers, right? And, I, and I'm, you know, I've been there. I'm, I'm curious to hear your answer. You have to be transparent. And at the same time, you have to respect that there is privilege and you have to consider future litigation and you have to go through all these kinds of things. So what do those execs do? And this is one of the areas where, as we speak, Alan, you and myself as executives and speaking to not only our fellow executives, but the technical team, technical careers that are coming up in our field, yep. be the heavy as the head that wears the crown. Uh, it is not as easy as it looks, uh, and it is leveling it up to that level of unfortunate chess where you have to keep in mind all of these moving pieces, all of these things for the enterprise its liability, its viability, and its technical response to this horrible event, and then how you're going to talk about it. I sit in Fortune you know, 100, 500, 1,000 boardrooms 
when the board is having its worst week and when the senior leadership team is struggling with these issues and even the best of our executives, you struggle with a crisis. Sure. The, the component that I see is the difference, as, as you and I talked about for this discussion, was between success and failure, is removing a lot of that technical complexity to make a decision about what kind of company are you? Right. What kind of reputation do you want to have after the crisis? Right. And sometimes you will see it takes a great deal of courage, and I use that term specifically, courage, of leadership of a company to say, yes, the lawyer is saying, don't say a thing. The technical advisors don't know yet. I have to talk to my clients. Or again, I won't have a business to recover. Right. Right. I won't. And and the call trees. And imagine this while you're cyber smoke jumping, as I say, you're fighting this fire and you're trying to handle all these things simultaneously. Every single one of the people you've been getting to trust you for a decade or more at your company is calling you demanding details of what you're doing while you're still fighting the fire and you don't know if the adversary is still inside your house. That's, that is exactly the scenario. So for me personally, the transparency is key. And I love the way you phrase it. How do you want to be perceived as a business when this is all over? Like, like what kind of business are you? As transparent as possible is a good thing. And again, I've consulted with so many entities and I've, I've been there. I've seen this struggle. I've seen it in their faces. Their clients are calling and they've got that look and they're on the phone and they've just got that desperate look and they're looking at me with this look like, solve this for me. And I'm like, this is one I can't solve for you. This is one you're going to have to ultimately make the call about your business, who you are, what you want to be. That's a great way to put it. You know, what, what kind of business are you? Who do you want to be? And I think transparency with possible incident is a great start. I've seen that kind of flow like, hey, we've got a possible incident. We'll keep you posted. Uh, we do seem to have an incident. Uh, incident commander is still in charge, blah, blah, blah. You know, you can you can give pointers and high-level overviews and satisfy folks. Now, obviously, the more you give them of that kind of information, the more rapidly they're going to be calling now every five minutes instead of every 10 minutes, wanting more and more detail. But I personally feel like the best thing to do is to share some of that and to definitely say, look, we're, we're facing an incident. We're in the middle of crisis mode. We will keep you posted. So far, here's where we think you are, you know, in terms of like, you know, we don't think your data is affected at this stage. We'll keep you posted. I think those kinds of statements are safe to make overall. But as you mentioned, privilege and litigation and God only knows what else down the line. But I think statements like that are relatively safe to make. There's a situation. That's a fact. Right now, we have no indication that you're in trouble. That's a fact at that time as well. And and start from there. Don't try to cover it up. I've seen businesses completely try to BS their way through it, where it's like it's not even an incident. We had, oh, we had an outage, an outage that lasted two and a half weeks and caused every single person in your company to be running around freaking out. Just what kind of outage was that? Don't try to downplay it. Don't try to make it what it's not. Be honest. The reality is ransomware hits, not just you but somebody else and somebody else and the guy next door to him and the gal across the street, you know, ransomware is a fact of life these days and trying to cover that up and hide that I think is probably the worst move. I would agree from my experience and I'll harken back to my days at NCIS and whether it's cyber or any other type of unfortunate set of events, the worst thing you can do is try and cover up so many more times in both cyber and other things in commanders of military units, more legal liability and crimes are committed trying to cover up what was probably a small fire to begin with. Right. Uh, my leadership and the mixed leadership and cyber liability, and I'll always caveat, hey, consult your lawyer. 
is tempest in a teapot is what I usually call it. It's get everything out at one news cycle that yep. you can. Again, you have to respect liability. Yep. You have to respect privilege. But you give the people as much transparency as you've decided that you can and mm -hmm. keep that up. You have yep. one chance to set that tone because once you are seen as dishonest, and especially in a time of crisis, that is a ink that won't come off your hands. Yep, that is exactly it. It is a memory in your clients' minds that they'll they'll talk nice for a couple quarters and then find an alternate technology or approach. Well, and and one thing I advise people too is once it's all over and said and done, don't be afraid to include your key customers in some of the lessons learned and some of the debrief. You know what? We had X. They got through X. Now we have Y and Z. Walk them through what you've already done to make it better and to ensure that something like this doesn't happen again. You almost can't lose if you're showing people we are stronger than we ever were. Agreed. And I, in some of the consulting that I've done with those boards in those times, it's a discussion of not only the response of the incident in that week, the month after, it's what is the security journey of that company going forward for the next three to four fiscal quarters and beyond. Mm -hmm. Whether your company makes clothing, food, oil, you know, mines, diamonds, it, it doesn't matter, or is an IT company or a data company or a social media company. It's all about whether your clients trust you. Yep. And that they've all seen the other announcements. Oh, we've had an incident. We're buying identity theft protection and credit monitoring for anybody impacted. Right. That That's not what I care about as a fellow business owner. Like, do you have my intellectual property? Has it been protected? Has it been lost? What about that merger and acquisition we were talking about? Do they right. know about that? Are they going to short my stock? Those kinds of things. So one of the things about that response and that assessment to bring it back to something most people don't think about. Everybody thinks about how many employee identities and credit monitoring. Right. What you're going right. to need to do is a BDA or battle damage assessment or business damage assessment. Which clients' folders were in the believed or known exfiltrated data? Right. What, what was the business impact? And here's the problem. That's not a keyword. It's not a social security number. It's not a birth date that's easily grepped out with a lot right. of the electronic discovery tools. Right. It, it requires knowledge and it requires understanding and it is a harder road. And we're back to that business perspective, overriding and overarching, I should say, not overriding, but overarching that technology perspective. Business knows what its data is. Technology can just sort of point to file formats and things of that sort, right? Like, like let the business speak and let the business rule on that one. So listen, Brian, we are long over on this show. This is going to be a long one, which is, no, that's great. This is this has been a phenomenal conversation. Every now and again, I let a show go long just because I'm having so much fun with the conversation. So this will, this is one of those shows. No sweat. But I got a question I'm going to ask you that I ask every guest, which is, what surprises you the most in cybersecurity? So I, I have two answers to this question. This is a great question. I love these. One is... That And I kid you not, the slides I used in 1993, and most of you are grimacing at that when I, was, when I founded the program in NCIS, I can still use today. And that makes me a little sad. The fact that it's still about confidentiality, integrity, and availability, it's still about speaking to the boardroom in the boardroom terms and, quote, understanding the business, yet yeah. 30 years later, we all right. seem to still be having the discussion. So those kind of things, some things never change. The technologies have changed, but the core 
concerns about hygiene, vulnerability management, monitoring, response, planning, kind of have not. And I, I would love to see a lot more collaboration, not just vendors, and they're great people for doing their solutions, but collaboration among us practitioners to get some of those things done. The other thing that always surprises me still is uh, one of my personal zealotry moments is it is not dumb it down or water it down for the executive course. So many people still believe right. that. Right. And even, and even the new uh, members of our community, the new kids coming in who are, by the way, smarter than I, I was at their age and technology enabled. And that's great. I love it. I still roll up my sleeves and fight fires too. But when you go into a boardroom, you are not watering it down. You are distilling it into something for the board. You are not dumbing it down. You are leveling it up. The CEO of Brinks doesn't fix engines, nor should they ever be explained how one works. Right. They don't need that. And it's not that they don't need it because it's lesser of a job. They don't need to know that because the general is not looking at one foxhole or one tank. They're looking at the war. Right. The, the executives have a decision-making and a number of variables that is horribly complex, just not as many bits, bytes, and firewall configurations as we're all used to. And for those who in our community want to rise up to be a CISO and sit on a board, you can. But the first thing is they'll know if you're talking down to them. Get it out of your head. Get it out of our talk. I love it, man. This was a fantastic conversation. Brian Hurd, Chief of Office at Aon Cyber Solutions, formerly known as Straws Freeberg. Um, thanks so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now.